invite you to uh, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. We're taking a short break from our regular series in the Gospel of Luke to think in a concentrated way about the significance and the wonder of the incarnation, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, to help us to do that, we're going to think about uh, John's prologue, as it's often called, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. So turn to John chapter 1. Today we will read the first 18 verses of the chapter, and uh, during the sermon we'll focus on the first five verses. But before we read God's word together, let's pray and ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now for the ministry of your word that he would shine into our darkness and that his uh, light would be life to us all. Uh, Give us uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is radiating and shining brightly in the face of Jesus Christ as we look to your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would come to us and speak to us and meet with us and deal with us in your grace. For we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Apostle John wrote his gospel uh, not merely to give us an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But he wrote it to bring us to believe in the Jesus who lived, died, and rose again from the dead. 
In other words, John's gospel is not a biography. It is an evangel. It is, it is good news. It is the good news of the Savior. And John is set on winning your heart, persuading your mind, and to bring you into glad, joyful, obedient submission to this Jesus. Now, John doesn't begin with the the details surrounding the birth of Christ. Instead, he takes you by the hand and jumps into the deep end of the pool. He takes you by the hand and leads you into some of the deepest, most profound mysteries of the Christian faith, such as the mystery of the fellowship of the triune God and the mystery of the union of the deity with the humanity subsisting in the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with wonder, with with adoration, with doxology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He begins with one of the most profound declarations, as if to make sure that whatever you make of Jesus Christ, you at least understand this much, that this Jesus Christ is a man like no other. He is a man, but he is a man like no other. And wonder and awe and praise and reverent joy is the proper and right response from each and every one of us as we reflect upon the significance of the word made flesh. Otherwise, we we might make the mistake of dismissing this passage, what it's saying about the word made flesh, as utterly irrelevant, insignificant, unimportant for our lives. After all, what could be more insignificant, more run-of-the-mill, more ordinary than the birth of another baby? And not just another baby, but a baby born a millennia ago in a world removed from us, born to a peasant family in a small town. What could be more irrelevant to my life today, some might ask. Or perhaps we might make the mistake of assimilating the, the story of the coming of Christ into the larger cultural narratives that mark Christmas sentimentality. You know, it's a quaint little story about a baby named Jesus to go along with the Christmas trees and lights and good cheer. Just a nice story that's part and parcel of a cultural Christmas tradition. That's how many people might approach this passage when they hear it. But when we look together in the manger, in light of what John is saying, where where the Christ child was laid... John is telling us in his prologue that we have come to behold ineffable glory, unfathomable mystery, inestimable majesty made flesh. The word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God became flesh. And so this morning we're going to look at the beginning of John's gospel. These verses contain, I think, One of the, if not the most profound statements on the person and work of Christ ever written. 
And if we're going to reflect upon anything around Christmas time, it ought to be it ought to be this, shouldn't it? You know, Mary and Joseph, the wise men and the angels, the magi, they play second fiddle. God wants our focus to be upon his son. Behold my beloved son, listen to him. This story is all about him. John John wants our focus to be upon him. You even sense that as you read the prologue, as he mentions John. Yeah, there's some... He bore witness to the light, but was not the light. I want to talk about the word. I want to talk about the word made flesh. And so let's take a look at these opening verses. We'll structure John's words with, uh, with three headings today. As we think about Jesus as the divine word in verses 1 and 2. Jesus as the creative, not created, creative word in uh, verses, or just verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, we'll think together about Jesus as the illuminating word. So Jesus, the divine word, the creative word, and the illuminating word. So in the first place, let's think about Jesus as the divine word. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice here three things about Jesus' deity in these opening verses. At first, John tells us that Christ, the word, is eternal. The word is eternal. Look look closely at John's words and listen to the verb that he uses. In the beginning was the word. When the beginning began, the word already was. And note the connection here. Put put side by side verse 1 and verse 14 for a moment and see what John is saying. In the beginning was the word. And then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So put those two two ideas together. At the dawn of creation, in the beginning, the word already existed, but in the middle of the unfolding of creation's history, the word that already was and always had been became that which he was never before. The word became flesh, John says. He, He took into union with himself a human nature and the person of Jesus Christ. And so when when the Virgin Mary conceived by the the power of the Holy Spirit and and bore a son and and laid him in a manger, that that was not the beginning of the Word. The Word became flesh. Think of it uh, before Mary ever drew her first breath. Before Adam and Eve walked in the garden, before anything was made that was made, the word already was. And so the word is not a creature, John is telling us. With beginning or ending, the word was already in the beginning. And some, of you, uh, some of you will know the name uh, uh, Arius, a false teacher in the early church, really a forerunner of what Jehovah's Witnesses today believe about the person of Jesus Christ, but Arius denied the deity of Christ by denying his eternity. So there was a motto that went around the early church summarizing the Arian view, which said there was a time when the word was not. There was a time when the word was not. There was a time when the Son of God, the the second person of the blessed Trinity, did not exist said Arius. 
He's a creature. You know, the, the first creature made by God, a glorious creature to be sure, but a creature nevertheless. But, but you see, that's not what John says in the opening of his gospel, is it? John says that in the beginning of creation, when God began his creative work, bringing forth uh, life, bringing forth uh, planets and stars and, and galaxies, uh, the word already was. And so the first thing John wants us to see about the divine word, the, the, the birth of the Christ child was not the beginning of Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, notice in these same verses as we continue to think under the heading of, of uh, the deity of the word, Christ's deity. John tells us that the word is identified as God. Did you catch that in, in, verse, in verse 1? You probably already noted the allusion to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. But John says, in the beginning was the word. So the, the, the God who presided over creation, he now tells us, is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Actually, literally, the last part says, the God was the word. Uh, ha, ha theos and halagos. The only God there is, is the same God as the word. All that God is, the word is. The being that God is, the, is the being that the word is. So that the one who took on flesh and dwelled among us is God. Uh, the word be, who became flesh is, is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. You know, in, I think a, a helpful passage maybe for us to think about for a moment is in, uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where uh, there's, Paul gives this, this striking statement to the Ephesian elders. He's talking to the Ephesian elders, and uh, he, he uses these words, um, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God, which he purchased with his own own blood. Now what's striking about that? What's striking about that is God doesn't have blood. Uh, God is a spirit, as we've taught Karis to say. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. God doesn't have blood unless, unless the God of the church took on human flesh and was born of a woman and was nailed to Calvary's cross to redeem his bride. And that's what John is telling us in in the prologue, the eternal word who is identified as God took flesh and nursed at Mary's breast, made Nazareth his hometown, walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Palestine, wept before the grave of his dear friend Lazarus. He labored in ministry to the point of utter physical exhaustion. I mean, who, who is this Jesus who stands before a tomb weeping and then a moment later with the power of his words summon a, summons a dead man to life and yet is touched with the feeling of our infirmities? Who knows human weakness? Uh, the testimony of the Gospel of John is that he is the great I am. He is, the, he is the Lord himself come to save. 
the one into whose hands the, the, the nails were hammered and into whose face the men spat and spewed out curses and insults. This man is the Lord of glory. What's the hymn that we often sing this time of the year? Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. So the word is eternal. The word is identified as God. But then I want you to notice one more layer to this that John adds as we continue to think about the divine word. John tells us the word who is identified as God is not the only one who is that one God. He is God, yet he is with God. See that in verse 1? The word was with God. If you care, ha logos ein proston theon. Literally, the word was towards God. Uh, or as a, one prayer phrase has it, the word was face to face with God. John will say later in his prologue that the word was at the Father's side, or more accurately, I think, in the bosom of the Father. What is John getting at here? I think he's grasping for words to describe the, the infinite, endless exchange of love that exists within the fellowship of the Trinity, the Father delighting in His Son, and the Son delighting in His Father within the bonds of the Holy Spirit. And, and what the Father is as God, John has told us the Word is as God. And yet the Word is not the Father, and the Father is not the Word, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Word. You know, Jesus Jesus says in, is it John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. It echoes, doesn't it, of that famous text in Deuteronomy, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet there is more than one who is that one God. There's one God, yet three persons. There's God the Father and God the Word, as John identifies him in verse 14, the Son and in verse 17, as Jesus Christ. And as John will go on to speak to us of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it is sent by the Father and the Son to apply the redemptive work of the Word made flesh. So not, not three gods, one God, not tritheism, monotheism, but God is not an undifferentiated, impersonal collection of attributes. It's three persons, distinct, yet indivisible, dwelling forever together in the unbreakable bonds of communion and fellowship. And so now when you, when you come to the manger, go back to Bethlehem with me now. When you read of this child born in the little town of Bethlehem, laid in a manger, you are coming, you see, to indescribable, ineffable mystery. You are coming to a truth revealed that you can never fully wrap your mind around. We are, we are just stammering this morning as best as we can using words to try to understand and grasp and appreciate 
the mystery that God has revealed to us in and through his word. And my question to you is we think just for a moment about application is what should this lead us to? What, What should this reality do to us as we reflect upon it together this morning? What's the right response to the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the God-man. I think the first, at least the first right response is to fall down on our faces and worship. To to bow down on, on bended knee and wonder at the mystery of the Word made flesh. I think that's John's purpose in starting here. This is, this is no artificial, superficial glory. This is ultimate glory, ultimate beauty, ultimate mystery being revealed here. And, and I think John is saying implicitly, behold it and then bow down and give yourself to this triune God in adoration and praise. You know, what do you do? What do you... What do you do when you think about the incarnation? I hope, I hope you are not being shaped by how our culture thinks about Christmas this time of the year and thinking about sweet baby Jesus in some sort of irreverent way. I hope as you think about this truth with me, you, you fall down before him in surrender and submission and praise because we're thinking here about the eternal word made flesh. And so Jesus is the divine word. He's eternal, identified as God, yet distinct from the Father and the Spirit, who are also God. Now, second here, let's keep going. Jesus is the creative word. Again, not created, creative. Look at the prologue again. Uh, Let's just pick it up in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now now you see the clear allusion again, don't you? Another allusion to Genesis. That's twice now. This allusion to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But now John is filling in some of the, the triune details of creation. Here is the one by whom God spoke all things into being, all things into existence. The, the divine word, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity is the, the mediator and the agent of creation. Now, a question that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about that in John's prologue is why, why does John bring that up here? as he's introducing us to the word made flesh, why does he think it important enough to to mention the creative work of the word? In other words, why, why does John connect the coming of the word into the world with the creative work of the word in the beginning? And I think, I think the right answer to that is John wants us to understand and appreciate the creative power of the word, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the same word who brought all things into existence in the beginning is the same word who has the power to redeem and to recreate that which has been lost and broken and twisted 
and marred by the fall, by sin. Uh, what are you, friends? What, what are you today if you, if you are a Christian? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how does Paul put it? If any man or if any woman is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. What has taken place in the heart of a, a believer in union with Christ is nothing short of a divine work of recreation. The word who created is able to redeem and recreate. I think that's why John is referring so much to the creation account in, in Genesis. And let me just try to make one quick argument for why I think that's the case. You know, there's this, there's this wonderful event at the, at the end. So go to the other end of John's gospel in John chapter 20, when Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes in his resurrected body. He's been crucified, died, and raised. And he comes to his disciples and he breathes upon them. He breathes upon his disciples. Now, why does he do that? I think some people think, mistakenly in, in my view, that this is some sort of anticipation of or precursor to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I think there's certainly a connection there, but I don't think that's what John wants us to be thinking about. So why then does John tell us about Jesus breathing on the disciples? I think it's because John is alluding again to the book of Genesis, this time to Genesis chapter 2. Because where else do we find God breathing into man? But when God created Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. And it may be that as John refers to Jesus as the creative word, that what he wants to allude to is that Jesus is the one who is coming, not just to save individuals that we might believe in him and have eternal life, but this word who created all things in the beginning has come to bring about nothing short of recreation, of a new heavens and a new earth that begins with his resurrection and then begin, continues in the work of the, in the lives of his people. And so Jesus is the divine word and he is the creative word. And finally, John tells us Jesus is the illuminating word. Here is a fundamental principle if you're ever going to understand the Christian faith. Here it is. It is Jesus Christ who makes God known. It is Jesus Christ who makes God known. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to bring illumination. Uh, the light of knowledge and understanding. That's, that's what verse 18 teaches us at the end of the prologue, right? I and mean, take a look at that. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has revealed the Father. In other words, Jesus is the Father's word to you. He is the, the self-communication, revelation of the Father to you. So, so what, is God, what does God want to say to us? What does God want to say to you? Where, where do you look to answer those questions? We look to Jesus Christ. 
We look to the, the word of the Father revealed, the word made flesh, who reveals the Father to us. Incidentally, friends, that's, that's why Christianity must always be a logocentric faith. That is a word-centered faith. Because Jesus Christ is the word. And, and we devote ourselves to the inscripturated word because where do we go now to listen to the revelation of the Father given through his Son? We go to the written word of God given to us through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And that means any, any Christian who says they, they want to know God, love God, serve God better, but have no interest in pen in hand, sitting down and studying scripture, submitting to scripture, obeying scripture, they are a deeply misguided Christian. So what John is telling us is that when Jesus, or when God sought to, to reach, to, uh, to seek and to save the lost, to, to reveal himself to us, he did it in a crystal clear communication. He sent his son to make himself known, which, which means, again, it, it's a deficient devotion to Jesus, isn't it? If we give the nod to Jesus maybe once or twice a year, but don't listen to the, the word given to us through Jesus. If it's not devotion shaped, directed by, steeped in Holy Scripture, it is a deficient devotion to the word. Uh, yeah, now, as we close, let me, just, let me just mention one last thing about Jesus as the word here. So think about it this way with me. If, uh, in terms of Hebrews, if God has spoken to us in these last days by his son, if Jesus coming is God calling out to, reaching out to, communicating himself to a world lost and in sin and darkness. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you at least that the lengths to which he is willing to go to, to reach you and to call you back to himself, doesn't it? It tells you about the lengths he's willing to go to make himself known. Here, here are the lengths to which God would go to call you back to himself. He would send his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, to live an obedient life and to provide the, the righteousness that you could never render, to then die and suffer the curse of death that you deserve to die upon under God's judgment in order to give you full, free forgiveness and new life. See, here is God's word and God's call to you. And, and here is the measure of his desire to win you and make you his. That his word to you, his, his communication to you, his invitation to you is his son. That is, that is such a profound thing for us to come to understand. That everything God wants you to know about himself is revealed in and through Christ. 
That's it's, it's literally what John says in verse 18 is that Jesus exegetes the Father. If you want to know what the Father has to say to you, John is saying, look to the Word made flesh. And so today, God, God is speaking to each one of us by, by His Word. He, he's, he calls to you in the person and work of the incarnate Word. And I wonder... I wonder if you're listening, if you, if you see the, the depths and, and the lengths to which God has gone to, to communicate to you, to reveal himself to you, to make himself known in his son. And, and I wonder if today you will answer that call in the appropriate and right way with new or renewed bending of the knee to Christ. Uh, he is the divine word. He is He is the creative word and he is the illuminating word. And so may God the Father, by by the ministry of his spirit, give each one of us today Christ, who is the life and the light of men. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for, uh, for Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, hearts to adore him, and lead each and every one of us to bended knee before the word made flesh. Lord, we pray that you would lead us to holy wonder and awe at the mystery and the glory of the word made flesh for us and for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.